What's up, guys? So I am not Stephen Jones, and this is not about the promise. Uh, that was last week. But, you know, my name's Jordan. Good to see you. Uh, if you were here last week, I heard Jonesy told you about the weirdest experience of my life, which is saying something because I've had some weird experiences. Uh, our roller derby bout that we went to, uh, which if you don't know what roller derby is, it's just, I didn't think how I was going to describe this. Burly women? Can I say that? Is that not overly insulting? Like the burliest women you've ever seen, sometimes rollerblading in different directions and just kind of like punching each other. And I've been forever changed. So yeah, I heard Steven talk to you about that. So you're welcome for hearing that story. Uh, yeah, we're going to keep going in the story of everything, which is our flyover story of the Bible, uh, which happens to be not just the story of the Bible, but the story of humanity, the story of everything. And the last couple weeks we've spent in Genesis. Okay, this week we're going to cover Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So buckle up. But here's the deal. I'm not even going to attempt to do that. Uh, I'm just going to focus in on Exodus, which actually has all of the major themes of all of those books. And so we're just going to focus in on Exodus. But let me just get right into this. So Stephen talked last week about the promise to Abraham, which there's music in the background. It's fine. Okay, let's acknowledge it. Hopefully they'll stop soon. Can you try and talk to him for me, Han? Okay, uh, but it's actually not as loud as I've preached over before, so it's fine. Um, okay, so we are talking about Exodus, and last week Stephen talked about Abraham and the promise this promise that God made that like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a people for myself and I'm going to bring you in as my own and I'm going to bring you to a land and I'm going to bring you to this place called home and I'm, I'm promising that I'm, I'm going to bless you and then through you I'm going to bless the world, right? And so things like kind of go up and down throughout the book of Genesis, but then when you get to the end of the book, like things are looking pretty good, God's people are doing pretty well, and then you flip over into Exodus and God's people are in slavery. And so immediately, if you've been paying attention, you're going, what's going on? God just made this promise that God's people are going to flourish, but now his people are in slavery. So I'll just read this to you. You don't got to flip there yet, but you can start opening up your Bibles to Exodus. I would love it if you guys would kind of follow along with me. Uh, there's a Bible app that you can download on your phone if you don't have one that's for free. We're going to flip around in Exodus today. This first one I'll have on the screens but this is how the book of Exodus opens in Exodus 1. It says, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so you have people who are image bearers of God who are being kind of forced into slavery and, and aren't being treated as human beings. They're being treated as machines. And, and what we're going to find out is that this story is a historical narrative. So it's a true story of something that actually happened. The guy that wrote the book of Exodus, Moses, was actually at all of these events that he's describing. And he wrote them down for us so that we can know what happened. But it's also kind of an example, a type of things that are true of the world. And what we're going to find out is that this thing that happened thousands of years ago that God's people were enslaved, that actually something similar happens to us. 
that this world that we live in by default actually doesn't produce our flourishing, but tries to push us down and says, work, earn your identity. You got to go. You kind of, kind of got, you got to always be running, right? And so some of you are exhausted because you're trying to kind of earn your way in this life. And it's actually similar to some of the stuff that they were going through. But flip to Exodus 3 with me. Exodus 3, 7 through 8. So God's people are enslaved and they cry out and ask God for help. And then this is his response. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down. I love that. He's, he's not just stayed distant in heaven, but he's come down. I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here's what happens is when God's people cry out, God listens. Guys, God cares about your suffering. He cares about what you're going through. He's, he's quick to be compassionate. And if you're struggling, all you got to do is cry out to him and he's quick to listen and he loves to respond. And that's what God does for his people. He's like, hey, I'm going to come down to you. And he's not only going to free them from slavery, but he's actually going to bring them into a better life. He's going to start to bring them home and he's actually going to give them what they need to live a good life. He's going to give them his law, the direction on the good way to live, the best life to live on this earth. And he's going to give them his presence. He's actually going to go with them. And so this is our kind of sentence for the week. So if you've been following along with us, we're, we're working our way one sentence at a time throughout the semester to form kind of this whole story of God. And this is our sentence for the week. However, God's people were enslaved in Egypt until they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. God lived among his people and he ruled over them through his law as he led them back home. So God is about to bring about this kind of miraculous saving event in history. In fact, the story that we're about to read for thousands of years was looked back on by the Israelites as the greatest saving event that God had ever done. He's about to bring this out, but first what he's got to do is he's got to take on Pharaoh, this guy that is oppressing his people. And so this is what God does, is he, he goes to Pharaoh through his servant Moses and he says, hey, let my people go. You can't enslave my people. And Pharaoh's stubborn and he pushes back and he says, no, I'm not going to let him go. And so God sends a bunch of these plagues. And we don't have time to get into this, but it's actually super interesting. If you dig into these plagues, every single one of them was actually pushing back on an Egyptian god. So there's like an Egyptian god of the sun and God blots out the sun. There's an Egyptian god of water and God turns the Nile into blood. And so he's systematic, like this is a cage match between God and these like false Egyptian gods. And he's demonstrating himself as the true God. But I want to stop for a second and I want to just acknowledge something about the Bible and I think about the, the Old Testament that some of you guys struggle with. And here's, here's what it is, is that when we read texts within the Old Testament, sometimes it looks like a different God than we encounter in the New Testament. So we have this, this idea of God as love and then we come across stuff in the Old Testament that frankly just seems kind of messed up. It's just hard to understand, and it doesn't seem like something that a loving God would do. And these are, this is actually one of those moments. Like, these plagues were brutal. They, like, people died. They impacted people's livelihood. They were super hard to live through. And so how do you kind of reconcile that with a loving God? So I am sympathetic with that question because I struggle with it myself. 
But I think part of the issue that we have is that we have this sort of like mushy, like Hallmark card view of love that is just not God. Like God's love is fierce. Okay, so I want to I want to show you a, a photo. Okay, so I had a kid recently. That's my little guy Graham, or maybe not so little. He's uh he's sitting next to Kate, which is Kaylee's kid. They were born a week apart. I think Graham could eat Kate if he wanted to. Uh, that check out that little smirk he's got going on. That typically means that he just farted. So. I don't know if that's what happened or if he's just like proud of himself sitting next to Kate, but he's just, he's just smirking, you know? So I'm trying to arrange this marriage someday. Uh, so we're, so I'm like looking at this photo and I'm like pumped about the future, but then my mind started to wander a little bit because I've got like weird dad stuff happen to me. I got like dad pride where he like holds a ball and I think it's like the greatest thing that I have ever seen in my life. And he's like sitting up now, I'm freaking out about it. Okay. So I have dad pride, but I also get like weird protective stuff going on. And so I start thinking about how they're going to get married someday and it's going to be great. But then I start thinking about their first prom and what if Kate says no? And then I start getting like genuinely ticked at Kate. <laughs> like I'm looking at my phone and this photo on my phone and I am angry at this three month old child that she might in the future break my kid's heart. And and I know that you're supposed to be like the protective dad when you have a girl and you're supposed to do that intimidate guys thing, but I feel like that and he's a dude and I don't know how that's going to work, but I think I'm going to have like weird conversations with girls that try and date him in high school, like, look, loosen here. I'm going to like try and be intimidated. It's probably a bad idea. But I am like, there is this thing going on in me where like, if you mess with my kid, I will mess with you. And like, he's a baby, so nobody's messed with him yet, yet but I'm like, anticipating this and it ticks me off like I'm fired up right now like here's the deal a parent's love is fierce right like growing up my mom I think Stephen talked about this last week my mom's like an awesome hostess but if there were bullies messing with me she would turn like red and she would just give them this stare and like people would run I mean like they just knew like get out of there right and when she had those moments you know what I felt loved, protected. And that's what I want to do for my kid. You know what that bully felt? You know what some kid someday is going to feel when he talks to me? Afraid. Why? Because fierce love feels entirely different depending on which side of it you're on. God loves his kids. He loves his people. And he will fiercely protect them. And so if you're in, if you're on that side of him, that's going to feel like you're protected, you're loved, you're kind of catered to. But if you're on the other side, if you're standing in sin, you're living life your own way, you're not pursuing Jesus, you're standing in opposition to him and you're standing in opposition to his people. And that is not a good place to be. And so that's how we can see things like the plague is actually a result, not the absence of God's love, but a result of God's love because he's protecting his people from the people that stand up against him. His love is fierce as a father. And so he goes through these plagues and Egypt and Pharaoh continue to remain stubborn and they keep not letting the people of Israel go and God is just not having it. He's like, you will let my people go. And the plagues get worse and worse. And he always warns them about them. He's actually fairly fair about them. 
He warns them that they're coming until it gets to the last plague, which is hands down the most devastating plague. It's the death of the firstborn. And so he warns them that this is coming, that at midnight, every firstborn child, not just child, but every firstborn in every family will die. And how it says it in the text is that there's this cry that goes out through Egypt. Like you can, well, actually we can't really imagine what that was like. As people wake up and they, like every house has a dead person in it. And it's brutal. And here's what's true is that that plague was the plague of death, right? And it was coming on everyone regardless, that it was coming to every household and that no matter where you went, no matter how far you ran, no matter if you hid, no matter what you did, there was nothing you could do to escape the plague that was coming. But God didn't want that to be the final answer. And so he offered a solution, the only way out. And the solution was the blood of the lamb. Let me read this to you. Exodus 12, verse 7. It's talking about a sacrifice of a lamb that they made. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. And then jump down to verse 13 if you're following along. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. Is that God pass, passes over the houses that have the blood. I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God makes a promise. Yes, this terrible plague is coming, but he's saying, I don't want you to experience it. I want you to have a way out. And all you got to do is trust me. You just got to believe that if you'll just do this one thing that'll demonstrate your faith, that you believe that I am the true God, then I'll pass over your house. I'll protect you. I won't be against you. I'll be for you. And, and here's the deal. This wasn't a plague just for the Israelites. This is actually a picture of what it's like to be a human being. Is that there's a plague of death coming. It's coming for all of us. And, and look, we're young, and so we don't think about that very much. But universally, death is coming for everyone. It's something that we got to deal with. And not only physical death, there's a spiritual death, a separation from God that can happen. And this plague is coming, and it's a result of a broken world that we live in. It's a result of our own sin that's contributed to it, to our stubbornness, just like Pharaoh. And we need a way out. And there's only one way out of that plague. It's by the blood of the Lamb. Now, let me just hold up for a second and acknowledge if you're like new to Salt Company or new to Christianity, that is like super weird. Like Christians, the, like the stuff we do about like talking about blood is weird. Like we're singing like, oh, the blood of Jesus. It's enough for me. And we're like pumped about the blood. That's messed up. I had a prof in college who like knew enough about Christianity to know that like Blood was like a significant thing in the faith, but he didn't understand why. And so he just called us vampires and he was doing it just to mess with me because I talked a lot in that class. Don't talk that much in class. Don't be that guy. I was that guy. And he was doing it to mess with me. But like, I just want to acknowledge, okay, that is weird. Okay, here is why we talk about that. The blood is a symbol for the life of something, Okay. And so this is what this is saying, is that there's a plague of death coming towards us, that we're all going to die, and we're not only going to die physically, but we'll die spiritually. 
and that something has to die. But what the blood is saying is that there can be a substitute where instead of you dying, actually a lamb can die in your place. And so that's what happened to Israel is they sacrificed this lamb and then they put it over the doorpost of their house. So it was the first thing that you would see on every house is if they had faith that they could be saved by the blood of the lamb. And here's what's true is thousands of years later, Jesus Christ sat at a table with his disciples. And the last meal that he ate before he went to the cross was the Passover meal, which was celebrating this moment in Israelite history. And the people around him would have known like the rhythms of the Passover meal. So think like your, your like Christmas traditions, right? You know those super well. And if something's off, you're going to notice it. And so they're following along with the rhythms of this Passover celebration, but then they realize that there's no lamb at the table. In the New Testament, there's no mention of a lamb being at the table on the Passover celebration. Why? The lamb wasn't on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. Jesus is the true Passover lamb of God. And his blood was shed on the cross as a substitution for you. So that if you're willing to put his blood on the doorpost of your life, in other words, if you're willing to say, hey, that sacrifice that you paid is my only solution, it's my only way out, it's my only salvation, I don't put my hope in anything else, then you can be saved. Because Jesus will take on that ferocious side of God's love, that angry side of God's love that protects his people. Jesus will take it on himself so that you don't have to experience any of that. So if you're in Christ, there's no wrath, there's no anger, there's no fear left for you. And so the question is simple, is like, is the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your life? Like, like, what are you hanging up as your hope for salvation, as hope for being okay in this life? Like, are you hanging up your Bible and your little list of the rules that you follow, hoping that it's enough? Are you hanging up your ignorance saying, yeah, I don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus, but I'm a pretty good person, so I'm just going to kind of count on that being enough? Are you hanging up like your success in life, your little trophies from high school, your degrees that you're getting in school, hanging that up on the doorframe of your life and saying, yeah, this will be good enough? The only thing that can save you is the blood of Jesus Christ. Trust in him and there's nothing left for you to be afraid of. Nothing else will cut it. So let's keep moving. So this plague comes. And the Egyptians experience this death, but the Israelites are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so the Egyptians have had enough. And so they, they go to the Israelites and they say, hey, get out of here. You guys, you guys take off, you leave. And the Israelites, this is an interesting little detail when you read the story, is on their way, the Israelites actually ask the Egyptians for like pretty much everything they have. They go up to the Egyptians and they're like, hey, can we have like your gold, your jewels, and like all your stuff? And the Egyptians are freaked out by what's going on. They're like, sure. And they just hand them all their stuff. And so in the course of a couple days, God's people go from being in slavery with no freedom, with no money, with nothing, to being free with all of the Egyptian stuff. That's crazy. Only God does stuff like that. And so they escape out into the wilderness, and then God mysteriously takes them to the edge of the Red Sea, kind of this like ocean-like sea. And they're hanging out, and they don't really know what's going to happen. And in the meantime, Pharaoh changes his mind. 
and he decides that he doesn't actually want to let Israel go. And so he takes the greatest fighting force that the world had ever seen and he starts chasing them down. And so Israel is in a rough spot here. Okay, they've got the sea on the right, they've got the Egyptians on the left, and they're looking both ways, see Egyptians, see Egyptians, and they're freaking out. Like, they just start to lose it, right? And they're looking at Moses, they're like, dude, I can't believe that you got us out of slavery and brought us into freedom and, you know, made us the people of God. Like, that was so brutal. We could have just stayed in Egypt and died there. Why do we have to die? They're just losing it. Okay. Why were they losing it? Like, what would the logical response have been? Right, I get it. There's an army chasing them. I I can empathize. But what would the logical response have been? That literally a couple days ago, God had just miraculously saved them when they had absolutely no hope, and they could have stood and remembered that day and believed that it would happen again. But they were so caught up in, like, the urgency, the immediacy of the moment that they forgot everything about what God had done for them, and they just panicked. That's what a lot of Christians are like. That's what a lot of you in this room are like. That's what I'm like. Is when stuff comes up in your life and when it gets hard or when it gets busy, when, when God seems distant or when you don't understand something in the Bible, when, when stuff doesn't go right, instead of remembering what God has done for you, you just freak out and you lose all faith in who he is. So, so recently we did this multiply campaign, which... Um, if you're newer, it's, it's like a building campaign for our church. We're trying to find a permanent home for Salt City. And uh, just me and I were trying to decide like how much we were going to give to this. And it happened to come at a time where we're about to buy a house. Uh, we're in, long story short, a house that we got to be out of um, by June. And so we're about to buy a house. We just had a kid. Like We've got all this financial stuff going on. And we're trying to figure out how much we're going to give. And I freaked out. and some of you like got to witness me freaking out and we like were stressed and going back and forth and when we went to like hit send on our gift we like genuinely were almost in tears like just nervous about what was going to happen and it's because I forgot like I forgot like if I would have stopped in that moment and just said okay how has Jesus not only provided for me in general in the past, but financially provided for me before? I would have had no reason to freak out. I mean, so here's why. So Jessamy and I got married when we were still in college, and I had zero money. In fact, I had less than zero money because we had like 60 grand in debt combined. So I had less than zero money. I know. And you're like, dude, why'd you go that far? I don't know. I was an idiot. Um, but I had no money, but I really wanted to marry Jessamy, and so I just sat there frustrated. And I was processing this frustration, and a, a mentor of mine was like, hey, dude, why don't you just like pray about it? Maybe God will do something crazy. And I'm like, yeah, okay, seems not likely, but sure, I'll do that. And I didn't know like how we were going to make just normal life work. I had no idea how I was going to get a ring, whatever. I went home that weekend. I was talking to my mom just about how stuff was going with Jessamy, and she said, you know, I want you to hold on for a second. And she walked into the other room and she got the engagement ring that my dad had bought for her. And my dad passed away when I was in high school. So this is like one of her like most treasured things that she owns. And she handed it to me and said, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I want you to have this. And I was blown away 
But then I still managed to doubt, okay? Because I knew that Jesme wanted like a three stone diamond, like the center one, there's two little diamonds. Because I asked about it early on, it was too intense, but it's fine. So I knew that, I'm like, how am I gonna get these side diamonds? And I still doubted God. And so I went back and two days later, a dude that works at a jewelry store came up to me and was like, hey, these diamonds came in today and I bought them. And then I thought, you know what? Maybe you would want them. And he just hands me these two small diamonds. But, but don't worry, I still managed to doubt. Because I'm like, oh, these are like different. It's not going to work on the same ring. So I take it into the jeweler. And he's like, you got these from different places. They literally look like you took them from the same ring. Like I could not pick out better diamonds to go together on one ring. So that happened. There's another time that we were dirt poor, like just eating rice and stuff. I mean, not like it was, we were fine, but like we were scraping. We were scraping by and Jess had just gotten this job, and she needed a car to get there. We only had one car, and I had no idea how I was going to get a car. And I went into our staff meeting the next day, and somebody walked in and said, hey, like, I appreciate you guys, and I just have a car that I want to give to someone. So in the course of like a year, God gave me a diamond ring and a car. Now, don't apply this the wrong way, okay? I am not telling you that if you follow Jesus... He's going to give you like diamond rings and cars. Just, just to be clear, it was a 1998 Ford Taurus. We called it the Tan Turtle. It revved up every time you started it and would like peel out. It was not a great car, okay? That's not always going to happen to you. But I'm just saying, God had clearly provided for me in the past. Like you would think you would never forget that story, but I managed to. I managed to doubt. I managed to forget because that's what we do as human beings. And I just want us to learn to step out of the immediacy of the moment, to look back over the course of our lives, see all the miraculous things that Jesus has done for us, and just say, you know what? I think he's trustworthy. Like, I think he's going to take care of me. I want us to be people of faith instead of fear. People who aren't constantly anxious, but are willing to just trust God that he's going to be good on his word. He's going to take care of you. That it takes steps to do crazy things with your life because you believe that God's going to do something with you even if you're insignificant, that you believe that Jesus can use you and that you're willing to do something crazy for him. Let's keep moving. So they're standing by the sea and God essentially says, chill out. Uh, Exodus 14, 13. I love this. I'm going to read this from the Christian Standard Version because I love how it's worded. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Okay, God, if you're in Christ, God fights for you. He will take care of you. And then I love how that ends. You must be quiet. I feel like that's a perfect picture of salvation. What have the Israelites done to this point to rescue themselves? Literally nothing. Hung out, doubted God, they got saved from the most powerful fighting force that the world had ever seen to that point. And God's like, hey, just simmer down now. Like, just, just be quiet. That's what salvation's like. You chill, you trust him, you believe, and God does ridiculous things in your life. He fights for you. And this is what God does. Is he literally just separates the Red Sea in front of the people. 
this wind comes throughout the night and it kind of spreads out the sea and they walk across it on dry land and the Egyptians somehow think it's a good idea to follow them in there. And the Israelites get to the other side and the waters close in on the Egyptians and the Israelites are free. But now the question is, now that they're free, what does it look like to live as the freed people of God? How do you, now that you're free, how do you actually live like you're free? And the answer is you need to know the law of God. So flip over to Exodus 20. This is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 20, I want to just read verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, question. Why does God identify himself? Did the people forget? Like, he literally just brought them out of Egypt. Do you think any of them don't know who he is? So why is he like, hey... I'm God, like, I don't know if you know me, but this is who I am. Okay, he's not introducing himself. He's reminding them of who he is because it's the foundation of what he's about to say. And so he reminds them, I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. And so when I tell you how to live, when I give you my law, it's not to enslave you more. It's actually to set you free. The purpose of the directions I give you for your life are for your flourishing and for your good so that you can learn how to be people who are free. He's giving context for this entire set of commands, which we'll get to what those commands are in just a second. But when I was a kid, I had family in California. So we'd go out there in the winter and hit the beach. It was a rough life. And uh, we'd go to some beaches that had these signs that said, beware of riptides. So I don't know if you know what a riptide is, but it's essentially this, this like underwater current that just pulls you straight out to sea and you don't even know that it's happening to you. The ocean is scary. Ocean's like a weird messed up place. So, so I'm swimming. I don't pay any attention to this sign because I'm a junior high boy and I think I'm invincible. And I'm just swimming, hanging out, and I turn and look around, look back at the shore. And I remember this moment where I'm sitting there and I can like see people getting smaller like pretty fast. And it was like, this probably isn't what's supposed to be happening. And so I start swimming back towards the shore. And I had this eerie moment where I'm swimming towards the shore and getting further away. Straight up terrifying. So I was caught in a riptide. And at that point, like there's nothing you can, I don't care if you're Michael Phelps, you're not swimming faster than that riptide, right? Okay. This is what sin is like, is when you get caught in it, it just pulls you out to sea. Sin enslaves you. Living a life that is not in alignment with who God is just pulls you further and further away from who you wanted to be. Some of you know what it's like to be able to say, I went way further than I ever thought I would go. I went way further with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend than I ever thought I would go. I got more mad in that moment than I ever thought I would be. You have the shame, you have the regrets, you have the stuff that you can't believe that you did. You shocked yourself. That's sin. When you get caught up in it, it pulls you out. And I don't care how hard you try, how hard you swim, you can't go fast enough to beat it. Now, some of you are doing the math and it's like, well, you're standing here, so clearly you got out of it. Yeah, if you swim like diagonally on a riptide, you can get out, but it's not as helpful for the illustration. You can't do that with sin. 
You can't get out on your own. You need a Savior to come in and get you. And then that Savior tells you the way that you should live. And so these are the, these are the Ten Commandments. These are the laws that he gives us. That's the best life that we could possibly live. So I've got them on the screen. We'll just roll through them. These are kind of the summary of them. Do not have other gods before me. Do not worship idols. Do not take God's name in vain. Just by the way, what that means is don't disrespect God's name. So consistently saying, oh my God, not a great idea. Disrespecting his name. Keep the Sabbath. I really want to go on a rant about that. I'm on Sabbath rants right now. I don't have time. You've heard my Sabbath rants. I'm going to Sabbath tomorrow. It's going to be great, glorious. Okay. <laughs> Honor your father and mother. Respect your mom and dad. Honor them. Do not murder. Hopefully we're doing fine in that category. <laughs> but Jesus actually came along and upped the ante. Jesus comes along and says, hey, I know not just your actions, I know your heart. And he said, actually, if you've even been angry with someone in your heart, it's the same as if you've murdered them. You're equally as guilty. Not the same consequences, but as guilty. Do not commit adultery. Same there. Even if you commit lust in your heart, it's as if you've committed adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. So don't lie. Do not covet. Okay, so I want to look at that, those first two. Do not have other gods before me and do not worship idols. So I think when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of this kind of distant God just laying out some rules for our lives, right? He's like, he's like the CEO that's sitting in corporate somewhere and makes this kind of lame rule about how you can't be on social media while you're at work, right? But actually, this is incredibly personal. It's incredibly intimate. Like, like what God is saying is, I don't want you to have anything in your life that's more important to you than me. Like, I want to be with you. I, I want to be the central part of your life. I, I want to walk through life with you, and I want to I know you. He's Like, this is like espousing. I want to be central in your heart. Like, like don't, don't cheat on me. Don't love someone more than you love me, because I want to be, I want to have all of you. That's what God is saying. He wants you to give yourself fully to him, and he wants to give himself fully to you. But I want to show you what the Israelites went and did shortly after this. Flip over to Exodus 32, 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses... Sorry, I'll give you a second to get there. I went quick. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, listen to this. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What? Like, God just saved them from everything wrong that was going on in their life. And this is their game plan to repay him. They take a bunch of gold, they pile it together, they melt it down, they form it into this weird-looking calf thing, and then they go, okay, you're the God that saved me. Like, do you see how quickly they bailed on God? 
The one who had loved them, who had pursued them, who had saved them and said, I just want you to love me back. I just want you to be in relationship with me. They bailed for a stupid pile of gold. We forget that easily. Our sin is that stupid. The pride in my life, the lust in my life, the greed in my life, is me piling up some gold and saying, you're the ones that saved me. You're the one that I'm looking to for my hope. Like, what's your golden calf? Like, what's the thing that steals your heart away from God that you run to for your salvation? Remember who Jesus is and turn from that. Like tonight, like you don't have to go there. If you follow Jesus, he's given you the power to be a different person, to quit betraying him and to follow him and to live in the best life that you possibly could live. Turn from it tonight. Live differently tomorrow. He's given you the power to do it. Learn to remember God when you're afraid when you don't know what's coming up in your life, when you can't predict the future, when you're out of control and it stresses you out, learn to remember that God has given you not only his law, but his presence, that God himself came down to live inside of you and goes with you everywhere you go. When you feel shame and guilt, remember that Jesus was the Passover lamb, that there's no wrath, there's no anger left for you. There's nothing that separates you from him. When you want to sin, remember that Jesus is better. Not just that you shouldn't sin, but that not sinning is a way better life. That you can be free instead of enslaved to that stuff. That you don't have to get sucked into that. When you feel beat down by the world. When it feels like it's demanding of you what Egypt demanded of the Israelites and you feel like you're not even a human anymore, that you just have to kind of work all the time, you're trying to earn this identity, remember that you can sit back and rest, that you can be quiet because Jesus has done everything that you've ever needed and your life is about him, not about you. Trust him. Be people who lean on the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb instead of on anything else. So that's what this story is about. So let me close by just reading you our story so far. In the beginning, God created all things, and he lived with human beings on his good earth. But humankind betrayed him, so humans were cursed and removed from his presence. While God promised to destroy the curse, he also promised to bless the earth forever through his redeemed people. However, God's people were enslaved in Egypt until they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. God lived among his people and ruled over them through his law as he led them back home. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for that truth that we don't have to be slaves anymore, that you can lead us back home, and that you do it by providing a way out from the curse that was coming to us, by giving us life instead of death. Jesus, thanks for dying so that we could be saved, so that we could have life. Thanks that the stupid stuff that we run to doesn't have to be the end of the story. Thanks for giving us not only your law, the direction of how we should live, but that you come to live with us and give us the power to do it. We, we praise you. So yeah, we, we thank you, Jesus. You're the hero of the story. We're not, and we want to celebrate you together. We love you. Amen.